You know, it's interesting in contrast to what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue in Matthew 23, how Scripture tells us to treat those who God has called who correctly teach, preach, exhort, and go out on mission. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work is preaching and teaching. Throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God held those who spoke for Him very highly, in the highest regard, and with honor. On the other hand, no one is so severely condemned as our false spiritual leaders. The harshest of condemnations and wrath are reserved for them. Those who parade themselves as if they are true spiritual leaders who speak for God and who in actuality are liars, deceivers, and hypocrites. And here in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus rebukes them, the spiritual leaders, in the harshest of terms. And once he gets started, he just keeps going. He doesn't stop. It's a tough chapter. It's a tough chapter to preach because of the relentlessness of the condemnation and the condemning of these false leaders. But we've got to do it for two reasons. One, it's here. We're going through Matthew 23, so we can't just skip it and say, ah, that's uncomfortable, let's not look at that. But more importantly, I think the Pharisees kind of stand as an example of all false spiritual leaders before them and all that followed after them as well. So this passage stands for us as an instruction to help us discern between the true and false leaders even in our day. Paul warns of that in 1 Timothy chapter 4, "...for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine." Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That's happening. There's a market for that. Huge market for that. So there are a lot of false spiritual leaders today, inside and outside of the church, unfortunately, who cash in on that desire. So as we look this morning to what Jesus condemned in the false spiritual leaders of his day, let us see or use this to help us discern as well about the false spiritual leaders of our day. Now, in the chronology of the last week of Jesus' life on earth, this is still Wednesday. Uh, It's a long day, a lot of stuff happening on that particular Wednesday, two days before his crucifixion, and the hostility towards Jesus, it's reaching a peak, and there's a purpose for that. He's got to get it done in a particular time frame that God has already set out for that, but the hostility, particularly among the spiritual leaders, is rising, and they so want to eliminate him because everybody's following him as, as if he's the Messiah or something. 
Throughout that day of the temple, Jesus has been condemning them, the spiritual leaders, over and over again, pronouncing judgment on them. Then he turns to the crowds uh, and, and warns them to stay away from those, those leaders because they're hypocrites. And last week we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 23 and Jesus pointed out to the multitude and to his disciples that the Pharisees lacked authority, they lacked integrity, they lacked sympathy, they lacked spirituality, they lacked humility, and therefore they were supreme hypocrites. And now he turns to the leaders themselves, starting in verse 13, and pronounces doom and condemnation upon them. Seven times he uses the word woe. It's a Greek word, ouai. It's a primary exclamation of grief. It's an exclamation of grief. It's hard for scholars to actually translate it because as they describe it, quote, it's a sound uttered from deep within in a moment of pain and grief. That's what Jesus is feeling. There was pain and grief as Jesus saw the results of their actions. And along with it came this divine anger against them for what they were doing to His chosen people, the people of Israel. So He pronounces this kind of curse on them. And it's not just a, 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 a wishful thinking. It's what in, in French we would call a fait accompli, a, a, um, something already accomplished. A divine judgment already passed. And with that judgment, there are seven curses. That's, and we're going to take a look at each one of them. Uh, we'll go through them fairly rapidly. First of all, false spiritual leaders are cursed for keeping people out of the kingdom. Keeping people out of the kingdom. Exclusion, excluding them. He says in verse 13, Woe to you, teacher of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those uh, enter who are trying to. He doesn't mince any words here. You hypocrites, you phonies, why? Number one reason, you shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. You who think you are the doorkeepers, you who think uh, you have the authority to let people in and keep people out, you who believe you have the keys to the kingdom, (laughs) you yourselves aren't entering. And you're not allowing anybody else to enter either. A prime example of this is during the ministry of John the Baptist. You remember he, he had come preparing the way of the Messiah. He was called a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for Him. And you remember that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea went out to the wilderness, out to where John was preaching, and, and they were confessing their sin, and they were repenting of their sin, and, and they were preparing themselves to be able to enter into the kingdom. And then along come these Pharisees and these scribes and the religious leaders, and basically tell them that, nah, John's just a false prophet. Uh, following him is a wrong way. You've got to do the things the way we say you're uh, supposed to do. Follow the laws and the regulations and all the little uh, detail things, our rules. And John, John calls them out, even back then, as hypocrites. He called them a brood of vipers. They didn't care about the truth. They just wanted to slam the door in the faces of the people. And on the flip side, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to, to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom. He's the one that had the keys, the, the apostles. 
You see, the true teachers, Peter and the apostles and all who followed them, followed in the, in the doctrines and teachings that the Holy Spirit gave through them, they are the ones who have the keys. What does that say about us? We are the ones now who have the keys to the kingdom. That's what the Great Commission is all about, right? Go and make disciples. Go and open the door to let people in. The Pharisees and Sadducees were doing just the opposite. They were keeping the door shut and therefore condemning people to hell. False spiritual leaders need to be called out. If the gospel they preach is contrary to God's word in any way, there will be consequences to pay. And we're not just talking about false teachers leading other religions or other cults. There are many false teachers even among Protestant churches across the states around the world. People will often church hop until they find a church that makes them feel more comfortable. You can always find a church that tickles your ears. He says, watch out for that. Secondly, false spiritual leaders are cursed because they, are not, only, they not only exclude people from the kingdom, but they actually usher them into hell. The two go along together. In verse 15, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. The actual word used for convert is proselytos. We get the word proselyte from that. The Bible dictionary says that it's referring to, quote, one who has come over from a Gentile religion into Judaism. It's not just a Gentile who, who can go into those outer courts. Remember, we, we looked at the temple and, and there was a court of Gentiles. But they have so been, become so indoctrinated into Judaism that they have become, for all intents and purposes, a Jew, other than being born one. Including following all the rules and all the regulations and all the rituals and all the festivals. They, they, were, they have succeeded in bringing them under the Jewish law. Now, apparently during the life of Jesus, according to Jewish history, there was a great effort being made to proselytize the Gentiles. Trying to increase their numbers, the, the, the numbers of the Jews. Now theoretically, that's not a bad idea. We do that, right? We're supposed to do that. Even in the Old Testament, Israel was to be the channel by which the world would know God. God revealed Himself through Israel to the world. The concept is not bad. Even today, we've got the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's a good thing. But what the Jewish leaders were doing was drawing them further and further away from God with their teaching rather than drawing them towards God and into the kingdom. And Jesus says, when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you were. How? I think there's two ways. One is oftentimes followers of a false spiritual leader or even a cult leader will often become even more fanatical than the leader themselves. A prime example, some of you remember this, is uh, Jim Jones way back in the day cult leader who led the people's temple for 23 years, and in 1978, Jones and his inner circle orchestrated a mass murder-suicide in the remote village of Jonestown, Guyana. It was all over the news. 
But secondly, the second reason I feel they make them twice as much a child of hell is because they inoculate them to the real truth. They get some of the truth and then get callous to the reality of who Jesus really is. So many people who have turned away from the church, and we've talked about that in the past few Sundays, they've had a taste didn't like what they tasted because perhaps of the hypocrisy they saw or they got sucked into the, the world's indoctrination against the church um, and against Christ, perhaps uh, as they go into certain universities. And now it's doubly difficult to draw them back because they are calloused. That's what the Pharisees were doing to the Gentiles, convincing them that they were following God when in actuality they were actually being led to hell. Thirdly, the, the uh, false spiritual leaders are cursed for lying about the truth, for submer- uh, subverting it and undermining it or twisting the truth. God says in Psalm 119, I hate every wrong path. Again, I hate and detel- detest falsehood. In John chapter 8, Jesus talks about the fact that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. That's where all the lies come from. Here in verse 16, instead of calling them hypocrites, he says, Woe to you, blind guides. He calls them blind guides because they lived under the illusion that they were the guides for the blind. They were the light in the darkness. They were the way makers. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, You are convinced, talking to these uh, spiritual leaders, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. A lot of self-talk, right? They were convinced that that's who they were. Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 14, you remember this, says to them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So you've got the blind leaders leading the blind people, and Jesus calls them out on that. Then he explains in verse 16, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the word. What does that mean? What's he talking about there? This has to to do with lying. And lying in a way that they couldn't be held responsible Today, people do the same thing, I think. Uh, if you ask someone if they're uh, telling the truth about something, um, a common response is, I swear on my mother's grave, right? What kind of an oath is that? What does that mean anyway? It means nothing, and there's no one who can hold them accountable for that. We shouldn't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. You've heard that expression. We shouldn't have to say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. As kids, we say, I don't have to keep my promise because I had my fingers crossed. Jesus, back in Matthew 5, talked about all the things that the Jews used to swear by and said, stop it. Just stop it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep it simple. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. But that's the kind of thing the Pharisees were doing. They had developed a system whereby you could lie and you wouldn't have to be held responsible Apparently, it was common practice for them to promise to do something and to make it binding, they swear by the gold of the temple. But if they didn't want to be held accountable, they'd swear by the temple in a way that the people would think that they were swearing by the gold of the temple. 
But then when they were called out on it, they said, oh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't actually swear on the gold of the temple. I just swore by, swore by the temple. That's how they worked the system. That's how they could lie and get away with it. Jesus calls them out on the stupidity and the childness of it. In both verse 17 and 19, he says, you blind fools. The word for fool is actually moras. We get the word for, for moron from that. The idiocy of their reasoning is beyond measure, and he was calling them out. Now with that in mind, listen again uh, to what he says, starting in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound, bound uh, by, by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. He's saying, if you swear by anything that represents God, a gift, an altar, the temple, the gold in the temple, the heaven, the throne of God, you're all always touching God. God is the one that is involved in that promise. And false religious leaders lie to gain something for themselves. First Peter, I mean, yeah, First Peter 2, Peter says, In their greed... These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. They lie. They lie. Fourthly, false spiritual leaders occurs for reversing divine priorities. Verse 23 is really interesting here. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you spiritual phonies. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Now, that's not really the part. The tenth part was not what Jesus was really upset about here. Um, that was actually a good thing. They were actually obeying God's law, sort of, at that moment. He's talking about tithing here, 10%. We read verses in the Old Testament like Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30, where it says, A tithe of everything with, from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belong to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 14.22, Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. I was reading a commentary by William Barclay who says this about this particular passage here in Matthew about the, the, uh, these, these spices. The point of Jesus saying is this. It was universally accepted that tithes of the main crops must be given. But mint and dill and cumin are herbs of the kitchen garden and would not be grown in any quantity. A man would have only a little patch of them. All three were used in cooking, and dill and cumin had medicinal uses. To tie them was to tie, tithe an infinitesimally small crop, maybe not much more than the produce of one plant. So the Pharisees would have this small bunch of mint and dill and cumin, these herbs, and they'd grow it in their garden or in a clay pot, and they'd tie the tenth of that. That's my crop. They claimed they had done all that was necessary. 
I've tied, that's good enough. And they were able to then pat themselves on the back as pious and righteous. Listen to the rest of verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tithe of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former, the tithing. You see, they had no faith. They walked by sight. They, they walked by works. They walked by law. They walked by their own efforts. And so he's saying you're, you're, really, you're really good at counting out the little kitchen, uh, kitchen herbs, the seeds there used to flavor food, but you've missed the whole point of what's really important. Justice and mercy and faith. It's actually taken right out of Micah chapter 6 from the Old Testament. Jesus didn't just pick out three things that he thought would be kind of cool to, to mention there. Justice, mercy, and faith. Listen to what God has Micah tell his people. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer of which is No. Micah goes on to give greater and more ridiculous examples. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my sin? Ridiculous. Listen to what God says. He has shown you, O man or O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act how? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What is walking humbly with God? It's faith, isn't it? We're walking by faith. The false religious leaders did just the opposite. They, they, they never acted with justice. They ripped off the people in the markets they had set up in the temple courts, for goodness sake, under the pretense of holiness and buying what's pure, and then they charge exorbitant prices. They had no mercy. Just, Jesus just blasted them a short while ago, tying up heavy and cumbersome loads and putting them on the people's shoulders. They had no faith. They absolutely rejected the Messiah. False religious leaders often get all wrapped up in the minutia of their systems, working hard so that it benefits them. It's a true spiritual transformation of the heart and motives that they often don't have. At the end of verse 23, he says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You know, there are many today that says, you know, we really don't have to worry about tithing because, you know, in the New Testament, it says nothing about tithing. That's an Old Testament law. You know, we're not under law anymore. Well, I disagree there because right here, Jesus says, we need to be working on justice and mercy and faith, walking humbly with God without forgetting the former, without forgetting the tithe. We should be doing all of that. But there is a difference now. Under Christ, it's the motivation. Why are we giving that now? It's true that we're no longer under law. We're no longer doing it because God just said, I said so, so do it. We're doing it because we love God. There's a motivation change. We love God it's part of the outward expression of the inward change of heart. 
In fact, I would contend that our tithes should be in abundance because when Jesus came on the scene, everything He did was in abundance, including giving life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life. Just a little bit. Have it to the full. Have it in abundance. Everything is in abundance through Christ. He says in verse 24, You blind guides, you strain out a net, but swallow a camel. What's that all about? If you look back to Leviticus chapter 11, you can do that a little bit later, you'd find a list of animals and creatures that were considered unclean, and therefore they would defile you. The smallest of those creatures in verse 42 of that chapter is a gnat. Guess what the largest was? A camel, right? Isn't that interesting? So they were very careful. Boy, you don't touch any of these things. You don't eat them. You don't do anything with them. When Jesus said you strain out a gnat, he's actually referring to the way they drank wine. Now let me explain. You see, in the winemaking process, as we've seen, and we've seen this before, they'd put a bunch of grapes in a carved-out area in a rock, and they'd stomp all over it, and the juice would start flowing, and going through a little channel into a smaller carved area in the rock as well. And so as they're doing this, the sweetness of the grapes, that would kind of attract the gnats, and they'd be flying around. You've seen that happen, and it drives you crazy. And some of them would fall into the, the puddle of wine that's there and eventually would end up in the wine. They couldn't get them all out. So when the Pharisees drank their wine, they sipped it through clenched teeth. That's how they strained the gnats out. Can't really enjoy it very much that way, but that's, that's the straining process. Jesus was pointing out the ridiculousness of their actions and their supreme hypocrisy because they were so concerned about the tiny little things, the minutiae of the law that they ignored the reality of what God really seeks. There was darkness in their lives, disobedience and rebellion, rebelliousness in their hearts, which is where God was looking. That's where God looks. How many televangelists have you heard about that seem super successful with a huge following and they're raking in a lot of money and later to find out they'd, they'd fallen into disgrace because of gross sin in their life that was being hidden? There's a lot of external piety being shown, but on the inside where it really mattered, there was sin, rebelliousness, and therefore hypocrisy. And Jesus said the same thing back in Matthew 7, 5. Remember, you hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The fifth curse is the fact that they extorted the people. Woe to you, teachers of the law, verse 25. And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then, and then the outside also will be clean. You see, when they had festivals, feasts, and ceremonies, that there was this whole process that they would go through to make sure the cups that, that would, they would serve the wine in, the, the, those cups were uh, purified, and the platters that they would serve the delicacies on, you know, the, those, those platters were super purified. But Jesus is saying, is that all that's peripheral, all that stuff on the outside, everything that you have gained and that you're showing off, has been gained by greed and self-indulgence. 
You've extorted the people that you're saying that you're actually trying to help. You're trying to serve. It was bad enough that they set up a marketplace in the temple courts, but then they then they charged exorbitant prices for everything that they sold there. You know, not that long ago, there used to be some preachers on TV who, for a special donation, you could receive a handkerchief that I have prayed over, and I will send that to you if you send me money and that handkerchief is going to bless you. Extortion. <laughs> Greed. Jesus says, get your heart right. Then your outward actions will be coming from a pure motive and a pure heart. The sixth woe, the sixth curse on, the false, for, uh, on false spiritual leaders is for their deception. Verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This, this has, you've heard this, uh, these verses preached, no doubt, a number of times. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with whitewash. When I was growing up in India, my, my parents were there. Um, they, they would whitewash their homes. Whitewash was often used. It's very uh, cheap. It's an inexpensive mixture of lime and water, uh, and you put it on, on, on the outside of the building, and it kind of goes on clear, but when the sun comes out and it dries it, it, it turns white. And it's actually fairly pretty. It looks nice. But the problem is that with all the rains that came, uh, little by little, it would get washed away, and this would be a kind of a yearly process. Well, according to Old Testament law, anything dead was considered unclean, and so the tombs that anything dead was in, the tombs would then be unclean. And so in order for people that were traveling to know where those tombs were, because you can't, can't touch those because then you'd become unclean, they would whitewash them. And they'd be white and, and actually fairly pretty on the outside. As you're walking, you see these white tombs. But everybody knew what was inside, the bones and decaying flesh, everything unclean, as Jesus said. And Jesus pointing out to the religious leaders that that's what their lives were like. They did all the stuff on the outside that made them look good, made them look righteous. But inside their lives, it was a mess. It was more than a mess. They were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. God saw their hearts, and they were unclean. And just as anybody who touched a tomb or a whitewashed tomb became defiled, but Jesus told them, you, talking to these false religious leaders, you are so contaminated and defiled by sin in your own life that anybody who touches you is going to be contaminated as well. And the last woe, the last curse pronounced, false spiritual leaders are cursed for pretending to be so much better than everybody else. Woe to you, verse 29, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They made themselves out to be so much better even than their forefathers, their own ancestors who killed the prophets of God in the Old Testament. We're so much better than they are. We would never do that. 
Do you remember back in just, just a few chapters ago, in, in chapter 21, when Jesus told them the parable of the vineyard and the landowner and, and the, the servants that came, and then finally the landowner sent his, his own son? The people of Israel had killed all the prophets and all the messengers of God. And he was saying, you're just like them. You're just like them. Get down off your high horse, you hypocrites. I mean, they were so consumed with their own lying deceit that they didn't even see the reality of the fact that they themselves were already in the process of plotting to kill one greater than all the prophets, the very Son of God. Listen to what Jesus says there in verse 32. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Their ancestors killed the prophets, killed God's messenger, and God sent one final messenger, his own son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the greatest of all prophets. And and Jesus is telling him, get her done. Get her done. You snakes. He calls them in verse 33, you brood of vipers. (laughs) That's what John the Baptist called them too. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Again, a rhetorical question. There is no escape. That's the final condemnation. They are condemned to hell. They were given the greatest responsibility imaginable to lead people to God, but they did just the opposite. They drew people away from God, slammed the door in their faces. You know, there's a huge, huge responsibility laid upon spiritual leaders. Paul says in 1 Timothy that the elders are worthy of double honor. However, James chapter 3, verse 1 also says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We've talked a lot about the false spiritual leaders and, and the condemnation that will come, come to them and because of their hypocrisy and deceit and they're leading people away from the kingdom due to their false teaching and, and, and misplaced heart, hearts. And you know, it, it's easy kind of to, to listen to a message like that and says, yeah, those horrible people. They deserve all that. Those horrible, horrible people. They shouldn't have done that. It's easy to blame other people. But what about us? What about us? Can we make this personal this morning? What do we learn about ourselves through this whole chapter on hypocrisy? God is very concerned about that for all of His people. It's easy for us to hide stuff from other people to a degree. We may have secret sins. And out, on the outside, we may be able to control our, our mouths but what's going through our minds? <laughs> God sees that. How serious is God about a pure life? People are always watching us, especially our families, our children, who know us best. What do our neighbors see in us? What do our co-workers see in us? Back in the early chapters of Matthew, Jesus talked about the fact that adultery was horrible. It was sin, yes, absolutely. But then he said that we've already committed adultery if we've had lustful thoughts in our minds. Killing is a sin, but hating a person in our heart is tantamount to murder as far as God is concerned. We may look good on the outside, all whitewashed and pretty and doing all the right things. We may seem all righteous on the outside because we do those things in front of other people. 
But what's going on in our heart? That's where God is looking. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the acts of the flesh are, are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, sowing discord, jealousy, fits of rage, uh, rage, selfish ambition, sowing dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These things, most of these things are coming from the heart, from the inside. And if we want, don't want to do anything about that, that's hypocrisy. But, if we have a desire for God to work in us, to do His will, and to mold us into him, His image, that's the kind of heart that God can work on. And that's the kind of heart that He will work on to purify us and make us into him, His image. We may say, yeah, but you know, I've tried. I keep trying and I, I just can't do it. I can't do it on my own. I can't be good. But, but you know, we, we need to remember that we are God's workmanship. It's God who transforms If we are willing, I mean seriously willing, He will work in us to purify us. He's promised that. And if God is going to use us to touch people's lives, let's ask Him to do that new work in us so that we can become those instruments of righteousness in His hands to be used for His glory. As we close this morning, I want, I want us to watch a short video that, uh, that brings a personal application home to us. It's called uh, God's Chisel. So watch this a moment.